Now, last fall, I shared with you that I had taken a couple of my headshots, some very basic headshots. You can look at these, and, and uh, they're very simple, nothing complicated. And I said, I put them into an artificial intelligence app, and the artificial intelligence app then spit out a number of photos that were very different. So my look changes, my clothing changes, my smile changes. This is what it put out based on those two photos you just saw. And some of my favorites are these, uh, especially the top left or top right and the bottom right. I mean, I don't know where they came up with those shots, right? But what, my very favorite is this one, which makes me look like I, I should be in some, you know, elite music conservatory, you know, leading some elite orchestra or something. Um, my kids seem to like that one too, so that on Christmas Day, I opened a gift from my kids, and um, this was my gift. <laughs> they turned that photo that artificial intelligence created into a pillow. And so yesterday, Leslie, my wife, saw me leaving to go to the Saturday night service, and she saw me pick this up, because we've kept it since Christmas Day on our living room couch. And as I was getting it off the couch to leave, um, she said, what are you doing with that? And I said, well, I'm going to take it and use it in my introduction this weekend. She said, then good, leave it at the church, would you please? <laughs> um, now, if you walked into my home and you saw this on the living room couch, or you walked into my office and saw this prominently displayed, you'd wonder about me, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd wonder if I was self-absorbed so much that I'd make my own pillow and display it. Um, you, would, you would question you know, some of us maybe have ourselves at the center of our lives, and maybe we're not as, as bold and, and uh, brass as putting it out on a pillow, but it's easy in life for us to put ourselves at that place of prominence that only God should have. It's easy in life for us to put other things, whether they be bad things or good things, in that ultimate place that only God should have. Today we're going to talk again about the nation of Israel and their movement over 40 years from slavery in Egypt to the promised land and the obstacles they overcame in that journey. We come to another obstacle they faced and it parallels their own journey of where God has us now here and where God wants us to go to there in our journey with Jesus. If you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, today we're going to talk about the idols we build and how these become obstacles in our journey with Jesus. Exodus chapter 32, and I want to just share a few thoughts with you as we begin to help us orient ourselves to what an idol actually is. Most of us perhaps think of, of an ancient culture with some giant wooden statue or stone statue they bow down to, or some area in the world that uh, is uh, somewhat uncivilized, so to speak, and that they would be worshiping these kinds of idols. But the Scriptures say we're actually wired for something and someone to be at the center of everything. As a matter of fact, God wired me to be content in life only when He is ultimate in my life. When he has that place of prominence, he is seated on the throne of my heart, then there is a contentedness that comes no matter what my circumstances. When I make anyone or anything other than God the ultimate thing in my life, I am building an idol. I'm building an idol. As you look at your own life, I think today the Holy Spirit might show some of you that there are some things in your life that have become an idol. An idol can be something around the, the lust and greed, 
pride of our world, something sinful and bad, but an idol can also be something good. Our families, our marriage, our careers, our friendships, our status. It can be something very good. It could be our, our portfolio. That It has such a prominent place in our lives that it has become an idol for us. We've given something good, a good thing, the ultimate place in our lives that becomes an idol. As a matter of fact, for me personally, over the years, I've wrestled with the idol of ministry itself becoming the thing that is prominent for me rather than Jesus. Maybe you can identify some of the idols that want to creep into your life. Satan doesn't have to really destroy us. All he has to do is distract us. He wants to hijack our hearts from Jesus. And so he doesn't really care what it is that we put in that place where God ought to be. He's only glad and he's really glad when it's something other than Jesus. Tim Keller wrote, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. The old preacher Adrian Rogers said, an idol is anything you love more, fear more, value more, or serve more than you do Almighty God. You fill in the blank. I guarantee you there are things that are vying to be at that ultimate spot, the prominent place in your life, other than Jesus. But ultimate contentedness comes when we give him that rightful place. Today we're going to talk about how we, how we build up idols and how we tear down idols. You see, it is because of our fears that we build up idols, and it's when we engage God in faith that we tear down those idols and put them in their proper place compared to who God is in our lives. Today we're gonna emphasize that rather than being enslaved by my fears, I should be engaging with my God. The nation of Israel at this point have been enslaved for 400 years and God liberates them from slavery. But as they journey into the wilderness, they're three months from leaving Egypt when we meet them in Exodus 32 at the base of Mount Sinai. They would stay there for 10 months and God would communicate his law to them. He would communicate his covenant with them, that he would be faithful to them. He would establish the tabernacle and, and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And, and this was a special time for them as they're camped at Mount Sinai. But it's obvious that they are still caught in the slavery of the past and specifically the fears that were theirs in slavery continue with them and they're enslaved by those fears. In Exodus chapter 32, we pick up with Moses being on top of Mount Sinai, receiving from God the commandments, the laws, and the details around the sacrificial system. He's gone up and down several times, but he's only been up there for three or four days, and now he's been up there for 40 days on his fourth ascension to speak with God. His assistant, Joshua, who served him, is partway up. He can't really see what's going on with the people on the ground. He really can't hear what's going on between Moses and God. But the people get a little antsy. It's been 40 days and no Moses. And so we read in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. I like this. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. We don't know what went on with this guy. He's gone. We got to move on now. Fears are taking over and we'll see fears emerge in their story and how they eventually build an idol. 
Verse two, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. He intentionally crafted this idol. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What? See, Jehovah God is an invisible God. They were used to all these gods of Egypt that were visually represented in some way or another. And so they say, this golden calf is the God who brought us out. When Aaron saw this, verse five, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. Now, that word Lord is not a general word for Lord or God. It is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. He's saying, let's give this golden calf the name Jehovah. Let's visualize this God. And he says, the next, we read then the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up and to indulge in revelry. This is the idea that they are in a drunken party after worshiping. It even hints at this being a, a kind of a pagan orgy that's going on. Drunkenness and all kinds of things are carrying on. Well, God is disturbed by this and he lets Moses know it in verse seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. I, I like that. He says, because your people who you brought up out of Egypt, you ever done that with your spouse? That son of yours, that daughter of yours, you know what she did? God says, your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're stiff-necked, stubborn people. They won't change. Now let me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, that I will make you into a great nation. I'm gonna start over and it'll be your descendants from whom I'll make a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? <laughs> whom you brought out of Egypt with, the, with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? This is not going to be a good testimony for you, Lord. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self." I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Now, verse 14 is one of the more beautiful verses of this passage. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. His heart is moved. And later Moses would say to God, all right, I'm tired of these people, blast them off the planet, and it's God who has to show Moses how to extend grace to Israel. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant along his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. God himself had written the commandments into stone. So he's got these, he's ready now after 40 days to take them down. God says, you better get down there. They're turning their backs on me. When Joshua heard the noise, of the people shouting. So Moses gets far enough down the mountain. He meets up with Joshua. They're beginning to travel down. He said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. There's war, there's fighting. Listen to that noise they're making. Oh no, Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. 
They're partying. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. God would re later replace these tablets, but he's so upset at what he sees. While he's with God, the people have turned their back on God and they've made themselves an idol that distracts them in their journey with God. Now, when he drops these tablets, I can't help but think of Mel Brooks in The History of the World, Part One, when he comes down as Moses to present the people with the tablets, with the commandments. Watch this clip. Hear me. Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15. Oi. Ten, ten commandments for all to obey. <laughs> now, don't email me asking me if there were really 15 and somehow we broke a tablet and we got down to 10. No, that's just uh, a little poetic license on his part, but I have seen that clip hundreds of times. I still find it hilarious. Oi, these 10, these 10 commandments. But in anger, Moses throws the tablets down and he took the cap, verse 20, that the people had made and burned it in the fire and he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. Here's a lesson in when you remove an idol, keep it removed. Because he takes and he grinds down this, uh, this gold into powder. He puts the powder in their water and then he makes them drink it. So if they want to rebuild this golden calf, they've got to collect all the gold that they're going to eliminate later. This is pretty much ending their attraction to this golden calf. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Did they blackmail you? Did they, get, did they twist your arm behind your back? Why Aaron? Aaron is his brother. Aaron is second in leadership here of the nation of Israel. What, what were you thinking? Verse 22 Aaron responds, do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. These people, these people, Moses. They said to us, make us gods who will go before us as, this fellow, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire. I, I was gonna destroy it so this couldn't happen. I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. This is like a kindergartner's excuse. <laughs> Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so had become a laughingstock to their enemies. As you look at their story, this idol becomes an obstacle for them. And I think it comes from their fears of who they were as slaves. They don't understand by the time they get here, they're no longer slaves. They truly are the people of Israel, they are the children of God. They're God's chosen people. He'd already told them, even here at Mount Sinai, how special they were to him. And they needed to recognize their identity as children of God. And yet the fears of the past are haunting them. And, and the fears cause them to forge these, these fake idols, particularly this golden calf. I want to talk about the six fears that enslave us and force us to forge idols. Maybe one of these fears will jump out as a fear that you have that allows you to focus on something else and give something else or someone else that place of prominence that only Jesus should have. Maybe the Holy Spirit will say, this is the fear you're grappling with. Maybe there'll be several. But I also want us to talk about how do we engage 
with God by faith and lean into what God has for us when those fears seem to overwhelm us and take control. The first of these fears that enslave us is the fear of being abandoned and alone. In verse 1 and in verse 23, as, as Aaron even repeats what they said, early on they say, we need to do something. We need to get a different God because we're alone, we're abandoned. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who let us out here. We feel abandoned and alone. So they're trying to fill that void. And when we have fears of loneliness or being abandoned or isolated, it will cause us to put something in that place of prominence in our lives other than our God. We live in a time of great loneliness in our world. We're more connected than ever. We can travel and come across people more than ever, and yet we are some of the loneliest people. What do you do when the fears of loneliness and abandonment creep into your life? Well, then you lean into the family of God. You lean into the family of God. That's why he's given us our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you feel alone, you lean in to worship more. You stay faithful in your serving God with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You stay faithful to the Bible study, the small group, the prayer group, the accountability group, where you've, the, the group you're serving with where you've got relationship and you can love each other. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We're supposed to be there for each other. I have people regularly who say, you know what? I don't need a small group. I don't need a group of people to grow with. I'm doing fine in life right now. But there are other people who need you. And there's a day coming when you will need other people. We don't control all the variables. We need to lean into the family of God. Have you been leaning in? Could anyone accuse you of being guilty of obeying Hebrews 10, 24 to 25? We have a lot of people who are lonely and searching and hurting in our world. As a matter of fact, on Monday afternoon, this last Monday, January 29th, a very famous individual from Sesame Street, Elmo the Muppet, you know, the red, annoying voice, annoying that he always speaks about himself in the third person puppet, Elmo, he tweeted out something simple that those who tweeted it for him had no idea what it would do. Elmo, on Monday afternoon of this week, tweeted out, Elmo was just checking in. How is everybody doing? As of late last night, there were over 200 million views of that tweet. There were over 200,000 replies. Those who've looked and studied these replies over the last week say that the vast majority of these replies are people saying, it's not going well, Elmo. I feel alone, Elmo. It's been a bad day. I don't know what I'm going to do, Elmo. There were people talking suicide and depression. These are people opening up to a Muppet. <laughs> that they are alone and isolated. Even President Biden and his Twitter account responded to Elmo and said, we all need each other. We need to look out for each other. So later in the week, Elmo tweeted again, wow, Elmo is glad he asked. There's that annoying third person talk. Elmo learned that it is important to ask a friend how they're doing. Elmo will check in again soon, friends. Elmo loves you. Just that response shows us that people feel isolated and alone. And when we as God's children get captivated by our fear of being alone, that will help forge an idol in our lives that will be in the place where Jesus ought to be. You need to lean into God's family. When you lean into the family of God and your relationships, that tears down those idols 
that fear would want to build. Secondly, there's the fear of facing uncertainty and insecurity. Uncertainty and insecurity. Moses has been up there for 40 days. They say, we don't know what happened to this fellow. Here we are on our journey. We can't go back to Egypt. We gotta get moving forward to the promised land. And so in verse one, they say to Aaron, make us gods. Notice what it says, who will go before us? We don't know what's ahead. We need a God to go before us. And so you gotta get us an idol. We gotta have something that we look to to provide certainty and security in our uncertainty and our insecurity. When you feel uncertain about what's going on in your marriage, when you feel what, what's going on that's so uncertain about your job, your career, and your relationships, that's when you lean into your walk with God more. You open the Word of God. You talk to God in prayer. That's why we give you the take five to help spark that kind of walk with God. That's when you lean in even more to God's family. Lean into your walk with God as God's child when you feel uncertain and insecure. Isaiah 30, 21 says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you're walking with God, God will nudge you and guide you in the direction you should go. Psalm 37, 23, 24 from the New Living Translation says, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall for the Lord holds them by the hand. As you walk with God, as you open his word and let him speak to you, as you speak to him in prayer, as you walk with him daily, he will guide you, he will lead you. You don't have to worry about the uncertainty or the insecurity of what might be out there. When that fear of facing what is uncertain and maybe that brings insecurity in your life comes, lean into your walk with God. A lot of people lean back. No, lean into your walk with God. Thirdly, the fear of being powerless and helpless forces us to forge idols, put something else in the place of God. They feel powerless and helpless. How do I know that? What's interesting is what we read here in verse four, he, he Aaron, took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. A calf. The Egyptians had a God that was a full-grown bull. Many of the Canaanite groups we know historically had a God that was a full-grown bull. So why does the nation of Israel not build a full-grown bull? It's interesting, I was studying that this week, and, and most commentators believe that they designed this to be a calf because they believed they were a young emerging nation going back to their land that God had given them. And what they're going to do is they're going to be feeding and taking care of this young calf God. And by the time they get to the promised land, they get established, they will make it, the image will be a full-grown bull. A bull represented strength and fertility and power. But notice what they're doing with this God they create. It's going to be a God they control, they nurture, they speak into. It's not an independent, powerful God. Out of fear, they feel powerless and helpless, and they try to control the environment by creating a God that will grow with them, rather than be a God that will grow them and give them power and strength. When you feel powerless and helpless, don't let those fears cause you to put something other than God in that place of prominence. Sometimes when we feel powerless or helpless, that's when we lean into our career, that's when we lean into our finances, that's when we lean into our success. And that can be very dangerous. So what do you lean into when you engage God by faith because of the fear of being powerless and helpless? You lean into the Spirit of God. God has given us His Spirit to empower us daily as we walk with Him. Every follower of Jesus has God the Holy Spirit inside of them. 
Lean into the spirit of God. Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Ephesians 3, 16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. When you feel helpless and powerless, be reminded you have the God of the universe inside of you to strengthen you from the inside out. What do you do? Then you yield to him. Open your heart and life to him. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's in the passive. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, you daily, as you feel powerless and helpless in certain circumstances and in life as a whole, when that fear creeps in, you thank God for his spirit in you and then you yield your life, your mind, your words, your behavior, your relationships to that spirit for him to empower you and to move through whatever you have to face in your day. The fear of being powerless and helpless will cause you to remove God from that place of prominence and put something or someone else there. When you feel powerless or helpless and you're fearful, lean into the Spirit of God in your life. Fourthly, the fear of appearing insincere and indifferent. The fear of appearing insincere and indifferent. When Aaron saw what the people realized about this beautiful golden calf, they calf they'd created. He built an altar in front of the calf, verse 5 says, and announced tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose up early. Look how sincere they are in their worship of this golden calf. They get up early. I wonder if it was a Sunday morning. Then it says they sacrificed burnt offerings. They presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. They're very sincere. Sometimes we fear that we've got to look a certain way for God. We've got to present ourselves a certain way for others. That We've got to look religious. We've got to look like we're passionate. And there's this idea out there, as long as you're sincere about faith in something, you'll go somewhere. The key to biblical faith is not your sincerity. It's the object of your faith. If you place your faith in Jesus, it's not how much sincerity you have, it's that you rest who you are, your eternal destiny, your relationship with God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with, ins what's, what's the opposite then of just being sincere? Well, when you have that fear of appearing insincere or indifferent to God or to others, lean into your obedience to God. Lean into your obedience to God. Do you know, if you want to know what God's love language is, he's told us. It's obedience. Because he knows what's best for us, and that obedience brings about that contentedness. We put him as Lord and, uh, and master of our lives, and we recognize the lordship of Christ as having that place of prominence. Then we walk in obedience to him. 1 Samuel 15, says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, but sacrifice seems so sincere but God says, obedience to what I've told you is more important than sacrifice and sincerity. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. If you say you love Jesus, it's not about how sincere you are in worship or how sincere you are in how you serve. It's about do you obey God's word? If you struggle with looking sincere, looking religious enough, looking Christian enough, stop struggling with that 
and simply walk in obedience. The Apostle John, looking back even at the concept Jesus shared in the upper room, he said in 1 John 5, 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. When you have this fear that you're not sincere enough or you don't show enough real passion for God, don't get caught up in that. Instead, lean into your obedience to God. Walk in obedience to him. The fifth fear is the fear of being responsible and accountable. The scriptures say it's appointed unto every one of us to die, and after that, the judgment will stand before the God who made us. The scriptures are also clear. If we stand there on our own in our sin without Jesus, then we will be judged for our sinfulness and will face an eternity without God. But when we put our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to make us right with God, not only are our sins washed away, but we're clothed then in the righteousness of Christ. And we stand before God one day, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, and not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus, done, Jesus has done, we're invited into eternity with him. One day we'll all stand before God. We don't have to be fearful of that if we know Jesus and his love and his grace. So what do we do in this passage? What, where, where's the hint of this fear of responsibility and accountability. It's in there in verses 21 through 24 when Aaron's trying to explain to Moses why he got involved in this and he quotes the people and then he says, I had them give me, they gave me the gold in, in verse 24 and it says, and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. He doesn't want to be accountable or responsible. When in reality, you read the first couple of verses, it says he chiseled this calf with a crafting tool. He was intentional about it, but he doesn't want to be held accountable or responsible. He's afraid. When you know Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of God. So what do you do when the fear of being accountable or responsible, condemned or judged seems to overwhelm you and you forget that you're a child of God? You lean into the grace of God. The grace of God is the goodness of God we don't deserve that's found in Christ. It's his love, his mercy, his compassion. When you feel like you're, you're condemning yourself or others are condemning you, you feel that sense of fear. Run fresh into the amazing grace of Jesus. Romans 6.14 says, Sin no longer is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. If you know Jesus, you are free because of God's love for you. You don't have to live under this hand of condemnation and responsibility and accountability that somehow God's going to get you. If you haven't come to that place where you've rested your faith in Jesus, do so today and God will forgive you of your sin and clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus. And Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation, there is no judgment against you from God because of Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus today. Our care team comes down front after every service to pray with you about any need. I'm in the lobby if I can pray with you. You can speak to them here or me out there about trust in Jesus, knowing that you've rested in Christ for your salvation, that you know the grace of God. You can also text the name Jesus to the number 58568. Just get out your phone, type in 58568 in the two section and the message, just try, type Jesus and we'll connect with you and follow up with you. Child of God, do you know that even when you feel that overwhelming guilt and sense, maybe you've sinned, you've blown it again, and Satan's going to try to use that to develop this fear of condemnation and judgment from God, and it's going to make you want to put something else in that place that God deserves. But Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace, of love and mercy, 
uh, with confidence, not in our own selves, but in Jesus, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You could always go to God as his child. We, we have to understand by the grace of God, I am the child of God. I am no longer a slave to my past or to my fears, to my sins, and when I need it the most, I can go running into the throne room of heaven because of the grace of God and the fear of being responsible or accountable creeps in, lean into the grace of God. Sixth and finally, the sixth fear is the fear of looking lost and adrift. Looking lost and adrift. Like you don't have a purpose. They get a little antsy. That guy's been gone 40 days. We're sitting ducks in the middle of this desert. We got these different groups who hate us and don't know what we're doing and where we're going and they like to destroy us now. And they don't want to look like they're aimless and directionless, that they're lost and adrift. Moses, in verse 25, it says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. They do look lost and adrift. They don't look like they know what they're doing. So much so that the text says they became a laughing stock to their enemies. People are watching them. Word is getting out. And in the Old Testament, the mission for the nation of Israel was that the nations would be glad, that they would see Jehovah God and they would turn to him. And yet now they look aimless and adrift and there's fear overwhelming them. So they're trying to put up a good front with this, this idol that's at the center of their worship and their camp and their lives. What do you do in the fear of looking lost or adrift like you don't have a purpose or a mission in life overwhelms you? You lean into the mission of God. What's the mission of God? Jesus said to his disciples before he sent them out in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You might say, yeah, those are your marching orders as a pastor. No, these are our marching orders. This is our mission. When I receive Jesus as my Savior, or you receive Jesus as your Savior, God didn't immediately transfer you to heaven. Why? Because he's left us here on a mission. It's to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's to be disciples of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of Jesus Christ who live in love like Jesus so that others will come to Jesus. And when others come to Jesus, they then will be and make disciples who live in love like Jesus so others will see Jesus and hear Jesus from them. And then they will come to Jesus. And as those folks be and make disciples who live in love like Jesus, then others will come to Jesus. Do you see this mission? Again, you might be saying, well, that's your mission as a pastor. No, this is a mission given to every follower of Jesus. And when you feel like you don't know where you're going, why life is happening the way it is, why you're in the circumstances you are, remember that God is molding you and shaping you and making you like Jesus. And right where you are in the situation and circumstances you are in, in spite of the others around you, he wants you to be and make disciples to shine his light for him. Which of these six fears do you wrestle with the most? Identify them. Then make sure that to tear down the idols that can be forged by those fears, you lean into the family of God. You lean into your walk with God. You lean into the spirit of God. You lean into your obedience to God. You lean into the grace of God. And you lean into the mission of God. And watch those fears be pushed to the fringes of your life. And watch as Jesus is exalted more and more to that place of prominence in your life. As you lean in and engage by faith with your God and his family and his mission in this world today.
A man named David Foster Wallace was a writer and a philosopher of my generation. David Foster Wallace was not a devoted follower of Jesus by any means. In a commencement to a secular college, Kenyon College, in 2005, here's this philosopher and writer who was an observer of culture who had the right description of the human need but never found the right prescription, never really found Jesus. But he described our need to worship something. I'm going to read part of his address in 2005 to Kenyon College, and I'm going to be reading things that won't come up on the screen. The things that come up on the screen, there'll be many of them, but that's to emphasize lines that I think we need to hear. By the way, he never really did find the answer. Three years after he gave this commencement speech, he took his own life. I actually met a man after the service who followed his philosophy and writing, and when he saw him kill himself, he actually went searching and found Jesus. And that was a part of Calvary. David Foster Wallace has a great observation here, even though he doesn't know the answer. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need, you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are our default settings, the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating in your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely. Hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom the freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. When we put anyone or anything else other than Jesus at the center of our lives, we make a good thing even, the ultimate thing. We really put ourselves at the center of our lives because we've got something we control, something we can shape, rather than let it be sovereign and control us as we should with God. Tim Keller said, our modern idols are more subtle and seductive than ever, masquerading as ambition, success, and even comfort, yet they enslave us, diverting our hearts from the freedom found only in Christ. Oh, friends, in our journey forward with Jesus, we have to be careful of the idols that will seek to hijack our hearts. 
The Apostle John warned, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Maybe this week you just need to evaluate which of these fears control you the most. Look at the responses of how we lean into and engage God and seek to do that this week. Maybe you just need to ask God, what, what are some of the things that are always in my life or at this stage in life are vying for that, that position of prominence? I mentioned to you it can be ministry for me, an easy one. It can, a good thing that can replace God as the center of everything, the place of prominence. What is it in your own life? And then ask God to help you. Destroy that idol by, again, leaning in and engaging God in those things that we mentioned about the family of God, the grace of God, your walk with God, the mission of God. As you lean in in obedience to God, allow God, as you lean into him, to dethrone those idols that Satan wants to use to hijack your heart away from Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for those who maybe you've spoken to already about something like family or marriage, careers, something even good that we've mentioned that could be an idol of their heart. I pray, Father, that you would meet them right now. Just show that to them. Help them to see what has gotten that place of prominence. Whether it be something we'd identify as a sin or something we think would be a blessing and a good thing in life. Father, help us to lean in and engage with you so those fears will be driven away. May we recognize today that if we know Jesus, we are indeed the children of God. We no longer have to be slaves to our past and the fears of yesterday or the fears of tomorrow. But as your children, we are free to live lives with you at the center of the place of prominence so that others can see Jesus in and through us and come to him too. Thank you that we're no longer slaves. In Jesus' name, amen.